Welcome to the Wounds of the Faithful podcast, brought to you by DSW Ministries. Your host is singer, songwriter, speaker, and domestic violence advocate, Diana Winkler. She is passionate about helping survivors in the church heal from domestic violence and abuse and trauma. This podcast is not a substitute for professional counseling or qualified medical help. Now, here is Diana. Hi, everybody. How are you guys doing today? I hope you are well. I'm doing pretty good today. It is a beautiful day outside. Fall isn't even here yet, it seems. But my garden, we got to harvest some of our food. We ate some green beans and snap peas, and I ate some strawberries from my garden. We're just waiting for the tomatoes to ripen. But it's really exciting when you start when you start eating from your own garden you didn't even think was going to survive. <laughs> and with the change of seasons here, you know, I was telling you about my birds, the wild birds in my backyard. There's always the doves. There's always the doves for sure. They're kind of like pigeons, but they're better looking pigeons. But <laughs> And they're cute in their own way, and they they come and eat the food, and that's fine. (laughs) Um, But my favorite birds are usually the hummingbirds, as I was telling a story about that. Well, I went to clean the feeder and put it back up, and we tried to get the hummingbirds to come to the feeder so we could take a picture or video. And I have not seen hummingbirds in a week. There's two of them that, that come like every half hour they're at that feeder. Uh, so I kind of looked up my hummingbird. It's not an Anna's hummingbird. That's kind of what most people picture, you know, with the multicolored breast and everything. Mine is like a grayish silver. Uh, it's called a black-throated hummingbird. So it's like a gray, grayish. It's got a black throat. And, it, and it's definitely cute. But I was reading... To find out what had happened to my hummingbirds because they weren't here and well apparently they're migrating to Mexico for the winter so I hope that they come back that they come back next year I will definitely miss them I did see my tohi friends my little tohi birds they're they are super cute I went out to throw the bird seed out there and there's these two tohis that come I think they're a couple. And they were sitting on the wall and they're making this cute little chirp, which they do. That's how I know they're in the yard as I can hear their chirps. And so I saw them on the wall and and they started coming closer to where I was standing, hopping. And the funniest thing, I tell them, come on over and have a snack. Come on over. It's okay. And just the craziest thing is, is that they do. They come over and where I threw the seed and they start eating and... You know, the doves all take off because I moved or twitched or something, but the towhees don't seem to be afraid of me at all. And so I sat there and enjoyed watching them forage for the seed and went back inside. But anyway, that's what's going on around here. Holidays are coming up. I didn't really do a Thanksgiving podcast, so. But we want to be thankful. It's hard to be thankful this year, isn't it? 2020 was a huge dumpster fire (laughs) 
And it's probably not all going to go away in 2021. You know, January 1st hits. I'm sure the coronavirus isn't going to magically disappear. (laughs) We have to practice the art of being thankful and grateful for what we have. Make a list. And I know it's hard. Just the littlest things that you see during the day. You know, I, I have the song on the radio I heard and it was such a blessing to me or... Like me, you know, I had a harvest this week or, you know, oh, the the weather is so beautiful or, you know, my kid got an A on his spelling. Just the little things. Just make a list and go back to those lists. And I'm not one of those positive thinker people. I'm not, but I'm not Norman Vincent Peale. I have to work at being positive. I like being around positive people because that lifts me up. My husband is naturally positive, and he lifts me up. Right now, he's going through a hard time with his medical stuff, and I have to lift him up. When I'm having a bad day, he has to lift me up. But we try and practice gratefulness, even in the little things. So I hope that encourages you during this holiday. Um, I'm not going to do. I'm not going to do a big holiday podcast. It's just not my style. It's there'll be a story for another day. <laughs> Um, But today, I have a guest with me, and he is going to talk about when you feel like, you know, your life doesn't feel like it has meaning, you don't have any fulfillment, you're trying to get out of the hole you're in. Maybe you got out of a domestic violence situation, and you don't know how to fulfill your dreams, you don't know how to take that step and work towards your ideal life. Well, this next guest is going to help you do that, to leave the drama behind. You can develop further. Read his bio here. Ken Keese, PhD, president of CRG, is a global expert on leadership, wellness, behavioral assessments, and life purpose. In 28 years, he has conducted over 3,000 presentations and invested 10,000 hours in consulting and coaching. Ken Keyes is considered a foremost global authority on the way assessment strategies and processes increase and multiply success rates. He's co-created CRG's proprietary development models and has written over 4 million words of content for 40 business training programs and 400 plus articles. His latest book, The Quest for Purpose, a self-discovery process to find it and live it. Well, thanks so much, Ken Keese, for coming on the show. Appreciate it. Well, it's great to be hanging out with you. And hey, we've been on a lot of Zoom calls together lately. Yes. (laughs) Had a very full schedule this week. So awesome. Tell us about yourself, your upbringing, and your family. Did you come from a successful family? Well, um, I'm a third generation uh, in Canada. So my grandparents, all four, came from Hungary between the First and Second World War as immigrants. Uh, And then they settled here. I'm about an hour east of Vancouver, Canada. So that's where I make my home. And so I actually grew up on a dairy farm. Uh, after uh, high school, I went to agricultural college, came back to work on the farm, but pretty well a few months in, uh, dad and I were ready to beat each other into a pulp. 
because we really didn't get along. Both of us wanted to be in charge. And dad was kind of of the European mindset, you know, just do what I say. I'll only tell you and criticize you uh, when you screw up. I'm never going to affirm you or do something positive because that might go to your head. Uh, and so I, you know, after a couple of years, I left the farm. I went and worked in agricultural fields as first for the Department of Agriculture, then as a feed sales rep uh, for an agriculture company. My diploma is in nutrition and genetics. So I was really a nutritionist to dairy cattle farmers. And then I actually started my own farm across the street, which was fine. I could do my own thing. And then the late 80s, I got into this industry as a sales trainer. So I bought a franchise in the sales training side. So what a natural transition, uh, closed down my dairy farm. And then that was the beginning of this. Now, when we're recording this 32 years later, I said, where did that go? <laughs> uh, and, you know, three or four books, the author of 12 psychological assessments presented 3000 times somewhere around the world, uh, authored 4 million words of content. So you know, it's an interesting story and journey. And of course, I'll link in my uh, face story here in a minute as well. So now this it is, 32 years doing what I'm doing. And the company that I own was founded in 1979 by a professor at a Christian university. He wanted to create, a, a, create an assessment that was different, better, more improved than Dis Myers-Briggs True Colors way back in 1979. And so he created the tool, the Personal Style Indicator. I got connected to that company in 1990 and then bought it nearly 20 years ago. So we're now you know, doing business in 12 languages, 30 countries around the world. Uh, and all our tools are built on a Christian worldview, view, but we equally serve you know, like Boeing or mm -hmm. companies of that nature or Ford or Chrysler as we do ministries. And we just say, we're just here to help develop people. And then my purpose in life is to help others to live, lead and work on purpose and to help them to realize their potential. So that's really been our focus for the last three decades. Well, you talk about the cows and <laughs> I don't think I've ever milked a cow. Well, it is 24 seven. And I think that was one of the things that happened. I think, you know, and here's my encouragement and challenge for those people that are listening, watching this show today is I got up one morning with my dairy herd and I asked myself this question. If I was doing this same thing 20 years from now, would that be okay? And I said, no, 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 I can't be doing that. And I always knew I was to be a speaker. Even when I was 16, I was speaking in front of groups, emceeing groups, asked to do that kind of work. Uh, I never thought I would be an author because my grade nine teacher said I wouldn't amount to anything because I couldn't read or write. And it was discovered when I did my master's degree that I was dyslexic. So the invention of the computer, when I went to school, I'm young, just to let you know, but when I went to school, <laughs> there, weren't, there weren't computers. So the, the program word wasn't there to help me understand or see the roots of words that I was misspelling. And the reality is, is that, so I have mispronounced some words, so what, doesn't matter, you know, get over it. And that led me to being a writer, which no way you would have ever convinced me that that was going to be something that I would do almost more of than any single item in my lifetime. So here we are. And, and now just really trying to, you know, live his purpose and to help encourage other people to live theirs and to be anchored in that. Wow. I have just a quarter acre lot and I'm a city slicker, so... 
never lived in the country, but we just started a garden this year and it is a lot of work. It is. <laughs> a lot Most of people work. don't know. Yeah, it is. Uh, though it's enjoyable. And the research shows, Diana, is that when you're out there and engaging in nature, you it, it actually feeds your soul. It does. So, um, even the research of kids that live in the countryside are healthier than those mm -hmm. that live in sterile envi environments in a, in a condo, you know, in a 50-story building. I'm not here to judge you because you live in a condo. I'm just saying the reality is the health stats show that when you're out and about and you're just kind of in nature, your immunity strengthens, but so does your core soul because you're out there with nature. And hey, that was designed that way. Absolutely. I think it's kept me sane during this pandemic is, you know, it gets 110 degrees here in Phoenix. And I had to get up before dark and go out there and, you know, water the plants and, you know, pull weeds and fertilize mm. and, and, but it gave me, gave me a purpose. And I liked being outside. I liked going out there and fussing over my plants and, and it was, you know, neat to see the birds, the birds would come around and, and uh, yeah, I don't have any cows and I'm in this prepper group that, you know, they want to go out and live in the country and they want to um, have their own livestock and stuff. But just from what you're saying, I know that it's not as glamorous as people make it out to be living on a homestead. It's always interested me to quote unquote, live off the grid. And what I mean by that is just being a property that doesn't require utilities from third parties and things like that. But I'd live close to the town or city. There is a lot of effort and work. And one of the reasons that I did stop dairy farming was the 24-7 obligation, 365 mm -hmm. days a year. I mean, you never have a day off in a dairy mm -hmm. farmer's environment. Now, I appreciate the values that I learned, tenacity, persistence, uh, it doesn't matter what the weather's doing. I remember one time where it was very cold, one February, it was rare for where we lived, but all the pipes and everything were frozen. Well, it took me four hours of fighting just to thaw all the pipes out so I could milk my cows. And just going back in the house and watching TV wasn't an option. It had to be done. So no matter you know what your personality or personal style is or anything like that, those character traits were entrenched in me or developed in me in that persistence uh, growing up. So that, you know, that's part of what I bring into it. I'm not, mm -hmm. uh, I was thankful for growing up in that environment, but it wasn't something that I was meant to do going forward. So you, you mentioned your father, um, but you also said that, you know, your mom had some abuse in her childhood. Would you mm -hmm. uh, be willing to elaborate on that? Sure. You know, it's interesting. I grew up in, quote unquote, a Christian home, mm -hmm. but it wasn't really because my grandparents were Presbyterian in their background. No judgment to anybody has that background. I grew up in the Presbyterian church. My brother and I were the youth. <laughs> that was, they were the only ones that were attending. But what I didn't see in my family was really the relationship with Christ. Mm. It was a cognitive thing. It was a cerebral thing. It was a duty but it wasn't really an experience. It wasn't a relationship whatsoever. And of course, later on, I, I sort of left the church. I can tell you my spiritual story here in a bit. But as a result of that, my dad was um, 16 years of age when his dad died of an unknown causes. He was on the farm. So he was forced to quit school in grade eight or nine to take over the farm with his mother. 
Now his eldest brother was working off the farm, but also was helping on the farm. And a year later died of an unknown event as well. So here his father dies. And then, you know, the next year before he's almost 17, his eldest brother that he looked up to died as well. Oh. And then my grandmother, where I was one of the, I wasn't the eldest male, but in that culture, you know, males just seemed to be, that was important to grandma. So I was the firstborn and eldest male farm. Grandma was pretty good with me, but she had a critical spirit. And so that spirit then led into my dad. My dad's way of dealing with that trauma was to say nothing, just really be quiet. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the culture, the Hungarian culture also was one of non-emotional. I mean, you didn't share your feelings. You didn't share what was going on. You didn't share your heart. And even though my dad was on the board of the church, an elder, I never saw him pray. I never really see him have this relationship. He believes in God. You know, is he saved? I don't know. I mean, it's hard to know. Just for the viewers, I'm an ordained pastor now. So, you know, mm -hmm. this is kind of a, a full circle for me. And, and then my mom uh, grew up in as, an, uh, uh, as a teenager with, um, with a father who was abusive when he was drinking. So an adult child of an alcoholic is kind of the process. So he later on, he, he straightened up. However, there was one night, my understanding from the story, I wasn't around yet, where grandpa came home and then um, was, you know, beating on the kids and grandma got a knife and says, you touch him again, I'll kill you. Mm. And so that was kind of the environment that my mom grew up in. Now, grandpa later on, when I knew him, I never knew that part of him. He was able to get his binge drinking under control um, his English was broken, but he, we, we had a great relationship. He passed away sooner and then grandma was left. Well, grandma was a critical spirits to my mom. So my mom now, as we record, this is 86 going on 87 soon. And, uh, I think she worries for the entire planet. <laughs> I think her self-worth as far as she still has not processed this value set. So she plays the victim card extensively. And then as far as my environment for my dad, uh, giving compliments, providing compliments just never happened. So he is 88 at the time of recording this and I'm 60 and I do not recall ever him telling me that he loves me. Oh. I just like not. Now, does he? Yes, he does. But to verbally say that I love you just doesn't happen. Uh, he, I could go to his place though and say, dad, I need to borrow your truck. I need to borrow tools. Always yes. Never says no to being helpful, but to be able to have that emotional connection mm -hmm. and to articulate it is not something he learned. I think he did the best that he could with what he knew. So same with my mom. So I don't, I'm not bitter with them now. I'm obviously disappointed. But what it led to for me in my teenage years, when I came back from college, so I was 19 years of age, I think when I finished college, I started when I was younger, is uh, I was suicidal. Mm. So I sat there on the farm, you know, here I'm arguing with my dad, I want to take it over, but he won't include me in any decisions. This is, the, it's my way of the highway. There was no relationship per se, it was just a dictatorship. Mm -hmm. And then talking about deeper things that never happened uh, at, at home. You know, when I got in some trouble with a girl uh, in my younger years, I wanted to share that with my mom and she just started to criticize me. So it, 
it told me never share anything with my mother that I'm dealing with as far as those pieces. So I sat there and I really said, you know, is life really worth it? And for those of you that have been through trauma or whatever, suicide is really calling out. Suicide is a hopelessness. It's Mm -hmm. where you believe in that moment that not being here would be far less painful than being here. And first of all, it's a lie of the enemy. So if we think about John 10, 10 is that the enemy Mm -hmm. comes to uh, kill, steal and destroy or whatever that order is. And, and so he wants you to uh, take your own life because then you know what your impact for the ministry is not going to be there. Your impact for others is not going to be there. Well, obviously I didn't take my life, but I thought about it and I had those components or considerations later on in life, uh, about a decade later, I was diagnosed as manic depressive. And so I went on an antidepressant called lithium. And it was my friend of mine actually out of Dallas, Texas. And she, and she was a psychologist. And she said, Ken, you're not a, a depressed person. There's something else biologically going on with you. And so we, I, at my insistence, did a glucose tolerance test, found out I was hypoglycemic. I wasn't depressed at all. Yeah. So what that had to do was around my blood sugar levels So one of my passions now in life is I love to develop the whole person. And we have 12 assessments in our company from personality, but we also have an assessment on wellness and stress. And as a, I consider myself um, a wellness expert Mm -hmm. uh, because I don't believe that we need to rely on external people for my, my health. And so a lot of times people get into trouble where they don't take care of themselves. So Mm -hmm. it's very difficult to be alive and functional and be a spiritual lion when you are fatigued, when you have no energy. So uh, I say fatigue makes cowards of us all. I wasn't the person who said it was another person who had started that. So I started to look at how can I take care of myself, make sure you get the sleep, make sure for the most part you eat right, that you do things right. A lot of times as individuals, we don't take care of ourselves. And then we wonder why we're lethargic or we can't focus or we can't concentrate. And we do that with our kids. So I, you know, this body is a temple and we have a responsibility to take care of it. So that's why we've been working in all these different areas. And then one other, and then we're talking about trauma and I haven't, I've only shared this very few times on podcasts in I don't, not that it's a secret. I actually share this story in my book, The Quest for Purpose, mm-hmm. which I am actually going to give everybody a copy of this at the end of the show, right? Uh, wow. So we are going to be able to give you a free download of that book. But in the book, in 1982, I was actually dating my high school sweetheart. So it was the person that I uh, took to my prom. She was a couple of years younger than me. And on December 13th, 1982, uh, the police officer showed up at my home and said, we'd like to interview Ken. Now I happened to be out in town with my brother at that time. And there wasn't cell phones that we Mm -hmm. personally had. So when I got there, they said, it's very urgent that Ken come to the station as soon as he gets home. Well, I'm curious. I don't know what this is about. I'm also nervous. I'm a little bit fearful. I'm kind of um, having nervous energy and trying to crack jokes when I get to the police department. Yeah. So I get into one of these interview rooms that are just like the TV says, steel chairs, bricks, security glass, uh, one person in the room, TV cameras recording you. And I say, what's this about? 
and the officer says, we have uh, reason to believe that you are uh, dating or a boyfriend of Carol Ann Rempel. And I said, yeah, well, that's true. And he, and he said, well, she was murdered last night. Oh. And so uh, I, I said, what? what? What are you talking about? And I was one of the second last people to talk to her. And I had been chatting with her on the phone. She was a individual who was gifted and skilled and wanted to be the first female fighter pilot in the Canadian forces. So she wow. was late at night at her employer's location, which was at the airport. And the janitor made a sexual advance to her that went wrong and then beat her to death. Oh, so uh, I'm being interviewed for this. They're asking about it. And it came to learn they didn't know who did it. It was mm -hmm. a mystery for months. But they had their suspicions, but they had no proof. And eventually they uh, charged somebody who I knew. He had been hired as a security guard for some youth group work that we had done. So uh, at that moment, that day, I went to work. I said, I'm, it, like I was complete denial. Just what is going on on this thing? She was 22 years mm -hmm. of age, Diana, mm -hmm. maybe going on to 23. So we've all had our situations or stories. It took me years later where I did a, a process called emotional freedom technique. You can agree with it or not, but it was a Christian who created it. I was drenched in sweat, just processing all the emotional sort of luggage and baggage that came out of that stuff through the process we did. It was, you just call it very, very intense counseling. <laughs> you mm -hmm. want to call it that. And uh, so we, but I still needed to kind of move forward. I was, thankful for the relationship with her. I was angry, uh, upset, but certainly in denial for not months, but years uh, because of that event and when it occurred uh, there. And then being a person of interest is um, has its own dynamics. Oh, I mean, so they I thought had, it might have been you. It, well, there was that consideration. Now, I had a um, uh, alibi. I was actually with my parents that night when this occurred. So that, uh, I mean, I lived alone. I was a single guy. So it was just mm. happenstance, the Holy Spirit protecting me mm -hmm. from any kind of suspicions, but really they were trying to figure out who did it. And I was a witness to, uh, that by being one of the last people to talk to her alive. Mm. Um, and now, you know, when we're recording, this is many, many years later, almost 40 years later, uh, but still, it has sort of an emotional tag that goes with that. So all of us have had things that happen. My encouragement is, is no matter what, because, I mean, you're in your podcast trying to help people go through trauma. You always have a choice about what you're going to do with it. And uh, as a trained counselor, a lot of times in the past, counseling was always about processing your past. I disagree with that, is that we need to look to our future. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, Carolyn Leaf's research on, you know, um, you know, who turned on, who switch off your brain and switch on your brain, her books really talks about what you focus on gets more, on, more of it. Right. So if I go in counseling and just relive the event and relive the event and relive the event, well, I haven't moved you forward forward. So I'm not denying its, uh, issues or what's going on or that it happened. I'm just denying its hold in your future. So this is around forgiveness. I had to forgive the guy who killed her. 
mm-hmm. because uh, you know the old story. Everybody has heard this if you've been in any front of any sermon is that unforgiveness is like you taking the poison and wanting the other person to live. We've right. all heard that. Yes. We just need to be reminded of that to, I wasn't obviously agreeing with the heinous act he did, but I had to forgive him so that I would be free and that his heinous act wouldn't be affecting me plus my family and everybody else around me as well. So uh, I don't think you knew that story was coming, <laughs> Diana. Actually, I did. I read your I blog. Did. Oh, you did. You did. Oh, well, you're one of the few. So, uh, you know, and when I do my normal podcast, I don't mention this for very often, but you know, the Holy Spirit has lifted me up, been there beside me, uh, in that, you know, it's not him who did this. So, you know, I can rely on him to be able to kind of build me up. And in fact, I have to, I mean, if, if we're going through life, we're just going to have stuff happen. It's Mm -hmm. just part of the dynamic of living in a broken world. It definitely is a fallen world. Yeah, I'll swing around back to what you said about forgiveness. Did did the uh, murderer, did he uh, go to prison or? Eventually caught. What they did is they knew who he was, but they didn't, you know, DNA was kind of uh, just in its infancy stages then in 1982. Yeah. So, um what they did is they set up a sting operation and then they had somebody, you know, where people have wear wire and they're recording what's being said. So uh, there was some, someone in his life that he had semi kind of revealed that, that he was involved with this. And so they knew that, but they couldn't prove anything. So then they set up this thing and then it went from there. And then once he sort of confessed in this uh, sting operation with this person, then it went uh, downhill from there. Yes, he was, uh, I think his time, I think he's like in life, in prison for life. So was it easier to forgive that you saw some justice for your girlfriend or did that not really matter? It's so long ago, I'm not sure if I recall if I was thinking either way, but I think um, finding the person who did it was important just for safety uh, matters mm-hmm. and curiosity and just, you know, who was it that did this? Uh, I, you know, knowing the person to a certain degree, I mean, because we had hired him and had interactions with him. Uh, he wasn't a hundred percent there, if you know what I mean. Just oh, so okay. I don't want to use the word simple, but I use the word just not a hundred percent. You know, the, the elevator didn't go a hundred percent to the top. Mm-hmm. And I think it was not planned. I believe that it was just a sexual advance go bad and he went to a point of no return that she's going to say something. I'm going to get into trouble. And the only way to stop this is to end her life. Mm. And uh, I believe that's what occurred and what happened. So he was single. He was in his Mm -hmm. thirties. And you know, a lot of sexual predators are kind of in that category. I don't know if he was or wasn't. Uh, I don't know. There was no other charges in other parts of his life, but that's kind of how that uh, unfolded in, you know, at this point, I'm obviously very, very sad. She was an amazing um, girl and being my grad prom date had sort of a, um, not sort of had a significance sort of in my history of my life as well. But I was just thankful that justice was done and those things were discovered. And I'm just saying to those people that watch or listening that, 
you know, no matter what happens, we have these choices to be able to move to the next level. I mean, I'm thankful, Diana, for your ministry and ministries like you that help people to kind of bridge that gap from where they are to where they need to do or some of the work that we do as well. So, you know, example is my parents, my mom mm-hmm. still has not processed this adult child of an alcoholic, her behavior is around it. Mm-hmm. And interesting enough, my sister who is in her fifties, and I hopefully she doesn't watch this, uh, <laughs> is, uh, you know, some of the tendencies are there too. And like, I know my parents won't watch it, but you know, if one of my family members watch it, is that, that worry side, that anxiety side that gets passed down yes. now, uh, in, Obviously, my depression side came out of that uh, family dynamic. Mm -hmm. And then with my dad never saying, never having a compliment, uh, I think he just emotionally was unable to do it. Mm -hmm. Now, what's really fun is my kids are 25 and 24 now, and they're very developed and skilled individuals. Mm -hmm. My wife, Brenda, is a school teacher. So we're both in the professional development fields, Mm -hmm. Uh, and so for, for their age, the kids are amazing. Of course, parents have bias about this, but they really mess with grandpa and grandma now. Oh. <laughs> so my daughter will go in there, grandpa, we really, really, really love you. We really do. <laughs> Just waiting to see if he'll say anything. And then he'll go, so he'll mumble and then he'll kind of be embarrassed. He'll look down. And it's not that he doesn't have any emotions, but the kids kind of know that. And they just, because grandparents can't mess with their grandkids that way. And then my son will do the same thing with them. And so from that point of view, we've just loved on them, you know, uh, accepting them for where they're at. I feel uh, badly for them that they haven't been able to brace everything that they could, you know, when we're in the stressful situation we are in the world right now. Uh, they have just taken the worry of the whole world upon their shoulders, right? So, uh, you know, God's very clear in his word is fear is from the enemy. You know, it doesn't mean stupid, but there's not one scripture that I'm aware of, unless you want to correct me, Diana, that says, you know what, being fearful a little bit's okay. Well, you know, God says, you know, he gives you fear so you don't jump off the edge of a cliff or, you know, bungee jump off of. (laughs) Well, I have bungee jumps, but but I I hear what you're saying is that uh, that fight or flight. But, yeah, that's a healthy fear. It keeps you from doing something really stupid. Mm-hmm, but <laughs> mm-hmm. And then when we get into the scripture, you know, f- uh, fear of the Lord is really a reverence for them. If you get into the Greek and the Hebrew mm-hmm. is that it's, it's reverence for them and, and it's honoring of them. And in, that's part of the problem in the global society right now. There's no fear of him. There's no reverence for God anymore. Nope. And so it's a godless society in many ways. That's why people are acting out. When you take uh, God out, then you get these um, situations where people are spiritless and they uh, really are acting on their own and the enemy is controlling them mm-hmm. exactly. and their flesh. Uh, well, yeah. for sure. And, the, and if it's not modeled for you, and we teach that in our development factors model that uh, as an observer, as a child of the relationships around you, that's all you know to do. And of course, we think that life is around social media, that it's around podcasts like this, but there was none of that Mm -mm. back 50, 60 years ago. And in Mm -hmm. fact, the TV was just even coming in and some of the examples there, and most of the examples were way more wholesome and and loving (laughs) back then. Uh, I think the the most amount of violence was on gun smoke. 
So uh, <laughs> I love that show. <laughs> <laughs> of course. I mean, those of us that are older remember that one. That was great. So part of what, you know, I want to encourage the listeners is, um, you know, people do the best that they can with what they know. My mom has told me that she loves me, but it's kind of an awkward thing. It's a thing that she does um, sort of there. If I say that I love her, then she would say, well, me too. Um, <clears throat> but not everybody is uh, that way. And then you talked about intimacy. We used to joke with my parents. I said, how do we exist? Uh-huh. You guys never touch each other. Like, how did it even happen? Like, was it an accident while you were sleeping mm. or something? <laughs> so we used to just, we joked about that because there was zero intimacy between them. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, but I think that again was cultural and that was part of it. Now, when we think about ministry and spiritual life, and again, the, hopefully this reaches people and it touches your heart. For the, uh, I went to a church that really, really nice people, but the services were equivalent to a funeral. Oh yeah. <laughs> and then the other one is, is when you have the theology and the mindset that you do in that group, they were one of the, some of the most miserable people that I knew. And this was the Christian church. I said, well, why would I want to be part of this? Right. So 16, 17, 18, 19, I really fell off and I was crazy wild and everything. Right. Uh, <clears throat> went to college, found out that, uh, man, I could buy four cases of beer for 20 bucks back there in the province of Alberta and, and the drinking mm-hmm. age was 18. And that's what I was. And so it was, it was a crazy time for me. But then when I got into, um, my later years of my 20s, 26, 27, I was invited to a Bible study by a friend of mine. And I said, I don't know. Like I always knew God was there, mm-hmm. but I really didn't want to have anything to do with them. I wasn't vile. I mean, there were some people that were violent. I was just disinterested in uh, Christian people. Mm-hmm. The number one reason that I lift, left the church were Christians, yep. at least I had. But I, I was around 25, 26, and I went to this Bible study and that this friend of mine, he had it, was a business owner, and he had it one Saturday a month. And I walked in this room, and here are these Christians telling jokes and having fun. And it says, those, those two things don't coexist with being a Christian. <laughs> so, so he's having fun, he's telling jokes, he's enjoying himself. It wasn't a legalistic pit and abyss. I said, what? And so all of a sudden my eyes were started to, to open up and then the spirit, oh no, man, the spirit's going to come. I might even cry, uh, but mm. he came to me because he had me tag for this kind of work, right? He is, he says, Ken, it's not about you and them. It's about you and me. Mm. So when we have issues with other people, it's always about going vertical. People will always disappoint you. And then his other, his next word to me was clear. He says, and Ken, when were you perfect? So none of us are perfect. And so, you know, some of the most judgmental people I've ever met were have been in the Christian environment, right? That legalistic kind of side. And I said, okay, fine. I now moving towards it. And that's when I um, was baptized in a friend's pool. I think it was 28 years of age and started to go on this journey. And then later on started doing more work for ministries and said, you know what, I, I, I really want to hone my uh, ministry side and decided to uh, take additional biblical studies mm-hmm. and then be ordained actually through a friend of mine who he has a pastor of a church, but he also is one of our associates because we license other people 
uh, around the world to use our tools to serve their community. So this pastor was using it to serve his team and all his team members were going through it. And then he also was doing community outreach. And he says, no, we'll ordain you under our um, CEEC banner. So there's probably about 4,000 kind of interdenominational groups that are under this banner. And that's why I'm ordained under that. I, I, I think, I don't know if I mentioned this in, in the podcast we were together yesterday or the session yesterday, is that I don't ever see myself being, quote unquote, a pastor of a church, but doing extended ministry, helping people in ministry and leadership. Uh, I've uh, done a lot of retreats for leadership mm -hmm. for denominations uh, because I can bring the expertise as a leadership and professional development consultant and wellness a consultant to bear with the ministry context. And so it's just add, and that's where I love actually doing the work. Uh, we have a local church, one of the larger ones, and the youth minister is a friend of mine. He also does apologetics. And so what we started to do is do his leadership group on our personality. I have a book called Why Aren't You More Like Me? And so mm -hmm. every uh, once or twice a year, we would do retreats for those youth leaders that were 18 to 30 years of age. And in that moment, I said, you know what? God has created us uniquely, but also perfectly for the assignments that he has for us in life. It's our responsibility to figure out what that is. So uh, Dr. Pastor Andy uh, would get up front and he would say, um, next to accepting Christ, he says, I think this is one of the most important things you could learn because every single person on this planet has a personal style. Other people call it a personality. Mm -hmm. And you're going to bring that to bear in everything you do, every relationship you touch, every work piece and responsibility you do. And it's not right. It's not wrong. You are uniquely created for the purposes that he has for you and the plan he has for you and the assignments he has for you. And every personality or personal style has related strengths and stuff <laughs> challenges, I guess. So I need to be responsible for that. I have, if I didn't have the strengths and tenacity that I was naturally born with, no way I would have had the fortitude or resilience to overcome some of the things that this company has been through and some of the things that have been in front of me in my life. Wow. Uh, on the other hand, you don't want me to be the auditor of your ministry books because I'll mm -hmm. just say it close enough. Because <laughs> I, I, I absolutely, I might have an MBA, but I really dislike the minute details. I'm really an idea person. Even though I've written 4 million words, the words are through ideas to influence people to improve their lives. Mm -hmm. To write a textbook on trigonometry is I need him to come here and I'm going to go to heaven quicker. I'm never going to write <laughs> it, right? So part of those, those of you that are watching, our ability to say no is equally important as our ability to say yes. Mm -hmm. So our responsibility as individuals, as believers, say, everybody says, okay, the Great Commission to share his word with other people. Okay, but where? Doing what? For you. So that is the bigger question for us individually to say, where does he want you to go? What does he want you to do? And, uh, you know, if I would have followed the cultural pressures, I'd still be on the dairy farm mm -hmm. with my two brothers. And so my youngest brother has taken over the dairy farm and now his son is looking at taking over and his son has got a son. So now you're talking five or six generations. That's great. That's fine. But that's not what I'm 
uh, called to do. Right. So my encouragement is if you're watching this, there's two things. First of all, don't let the pressures of the past and other people's expectation drive you. Really only a Holy Spirit can lead you. And some close advisors that have wisdom and insights or even a word of knowledge for you that you wouldn't know that's driven from the Holy Spirit, not from here. The second one is if that is true for you and you're a parent or you're a significant other or you're a partner, why wouldn't you honor that uniqueness of the people around them as well? A friend of mine who's a believer who was part owner of the company that I now own 100%, uh, and I, but I've known him for 40 years, when we first got involved with this, he says, Ken, my son's really, he's not going to amount to anything. He's the laziest kid I've ever met. But what he was saying, because my friend is a driven entrepreneur, like this, this guy at 70 works 12 hours a day, six days a week, even now. And you can't stop him. And that's just who he is. It's the fabric of who he is. He was a dairy farmer as well. So you, he's already got that in his genes. His son, who was not really lazy, was just extremely easygoing. Mm -hmm. So his style was just, dad, no chill. Just chill, dad, whatever. Mm -hmm. You know what he is now? Pediatric doctor. Oh, so, no. uh, so sometimes we go there and we judge people and we say, well, you know, you're not going to amount to anything. You're lazy. You shouldn't be doing this. Uh, and in fact, God had a calling for his name is John to be a doctor and think about his nature. He's caring for kids. He has a heart for kids. He has the temperament for kids. He loves on them as a doctor and then gifted on that. What a better place to be. Now the relationship between father and son have never been uh, better as part of it. So, you know, as you think about this, how can we create a space, a safe space for individuals like you or me to go on this journey of discovery with me, not because of what I say or don't say, but together so that I can help you realize your potential. And one of the things that is, um, I do still kind of get a little miffed at how Christians can put other people down for certain reasons. Absolutely. Or just, or just people in general. I had a point and now it's gone. It'll come back to me here in a moment. But part of this is that we don't want to be judging people about their direction and putting them down for certain directions because mm -hmm. now what we're doing is we're spilling our fear into their space. The reality is the enemy will bring people around you to discount you. We even talked about that yesterday in, in the um, Christian business owners call mm -hmm. is that the enemy wants to discount your worth. Yes. If I go, I have zero people says, Ken, do you still get nervous speaking in front of groups? This is never like never, if it's a thousand people, 2000 people, 3000 people, I love it. I'm energized. You ever get nervous getting on a show? Never does not happen. However, if I'm asked to preach in front of a church, then the worthiness, the enemy comes after me says, Ken, do you know who you are? What gives you the right to speak about Christ's righteousness in front of these people? And so my, my, uh, um, for, I want to call it wisdom. Mm -hmm to individuals is that the enemy wants to discount that you know there's a big difference between confidence and arrogance is that we want to be confident in who he is and yes he has asked me to share his word with others in the context and i've done preaching for people online and in services at churches and then also led 
you know, ministries through our work and leadership and personality and wellness and all these things. But I'm still working on this thing where the enemy wants to attack this. Who do you think you are? Mm-hmm. Well, when, when he called out Moses, what Moses says, well, I'm not equipped for this. Uh, we use the uh, scripture from Gideon. I'm the weakest of my clan. Why, mm-hmm. why choose my, me? And I started to think about that. Think about all the people that God cho- chose to lead and be in front. Half of them are murderers. I mean, I'm being demonstrative, but right. uh, yeah, so hello, that didn't exclude them. Then you have this Pharisee who is killing Christians on the weekend who wrote nearly half of the New Testament. Absolutely. What, what, what are you talking about? Because he's, he's trying to demonstrate to you, me, and everybody watching the transformational nature of his spirit. And that there is nothing that's not possible if you're in his will and following it. I will never, in spite of all, like you were talking off air about these, I'll call it uh, new age kind of positive thinking stuff. Mm-hmm. I will never be a basketball player. <laughs> it's just not going to. Me neither. At 5'9", <laughs> it is not going to happen. It's just, I mean, I can have all the goals in the world. I can visualize all I want. It's just not going to happen. But if it's in the context of his will, and here's the, here's the other responsibility as believers. It's your responsibility to find out what that will is. Where does he want you to go? And again, to be really careful, be really cautious, to only get feedback from those people who are trusted advisors that know the spirit. Oh, I know what I was going to say earlier is my family, when I decided to leave my sales job to start my own sales training, even then, my parents said, my dad said to me, why would you leave a company that gives you a free car? Mm. And then they give you lunches too. It, what, a, what, what an idiot you are to leave that job to start this training business. Well, that company, by the way, three or four years later went bankrupt. So that was kind of a, a, a little get back at your dad moment there. And I said, oh, fine. But that's how people are thinking. They're well-meaning. They're trying to protect you. But don't absorb their fear. Don't let their doubt come into your space. Sometimes you have to be extremely guarded about, uh, I'll call it the unbelief of others around you. I mean, when uh, Jesus didn't chastise the disciples very often, but he chastised them about fear in the boat and the water, but Mm -hmm. he also chastised their unbelief when they couldn't heal the crippled individual who was um uh come on help me with the word diana possessed so uh and they said they said what why couldn't we cast out the the devil they said because of your unbelief so sometimes we need to make sure that we guard ourselves and be around those people that really are there with us diana on that side i'm getting a little preachy now instead of just a podcast on i love it i love it (laughs) but we talk a lot about boundaries that you have to have boundaries, physical boundaries, as well as mental boundaries. Who are you hanging out with? Who are you allowing to influence you? That's super important. Oh, and, and in fact, I was talking about this on another uh, podcast just this morning that I was on, is that, you know, the research is clear. Who you associate with matters. And the proof is, is that your five closest associates will be the highest level of influence. In other words, if we look at your five closest friends, I can almost predict 
with certainty what you're going to be like, how you're going to think, how you're going to act, because you're constantly influencing each other. Now, I remember, and I know you're almost getting close to the end of the show, but one of my colleagues, not a believer, but very wise guy, uh, Dr. Marshall Goldsmith, one of the top coaches in the world, wrote the book Triggers and What Got You Here Won't Get You There. And I was at an invite-only event in New York with him and 20 or 30 other people in the coaching industry. And one of the things he stated, and this is so true, especially people with trauma and they have family, is that a lot of times you want to go to a new level. So Diana, you're going to a new level. You're doing the podcast. You're doing this ministry. You're growing. I'm growing. Your past, the people that you grew up in high school or the people that know you or your family, they want to keep you where you were. They don't want to, you to go where you're going. So an example is when I got my doctorate degree, we had a family dinner and it was kind of a celebration. And one of my family members said to me with almost with disdain, we're never calling you doctor. Mm -hmm. And part of it is, is that they knew me for who I was 30 years ago. And then, of course, I left the farm. I went on my own, uh, started to develop relationships and connections with amazing people around the world. Is that some, not that I'm better than them, but I am different. And so I don't really share what I do with my family members. And that's what Marshall was teaching in his group, is that sometimes who you become doesn't fit the people that you used to hang out with. It doesn't mean you don't hang out with them. You just limit that. You're being with your family, Diana. What are you doing? He says, well, I'm doing ministry work and, you know, I'm running a podcast and I'm just really helping people to overcome trauma. And that's it. That's all it's done. We don't talk about the great people we met or because what happens is you're seen as being arrogant and who do you think you are rather than colleagues where you're just sharing your excitement about this growth. Oh, so yeah. The reality I've is. I've already done it. Yeah. <laughs> I've had, I had relatives come up to me because they, they heard me. Uh, I was a guest on somebody else's podcast. Oh, she can't do that. You know, she's going to hurt somebody. She's not a licensed counselor. She's not this. She's not that. And like, well, I have had training. I get con mm -hmm. considerable training. I'm not a licensed counselor, mm -hmm. but the program that I follow was written by a trauma counselor and a theology professor. So that's called Mending the Soul, by the way. Mm -hmm. anyway yeah there definitely were already people telling me well you shouldn't be doing that who are you you're not you're not some super professional girl you're just you're just diana you're just an abuse survivor that's all you are kind of thing so yeah well what happens a lot of times is is envy can come in jealousy can come in they want to still contain you and me to who we were but it's also still their perception uh, it's true with, you know, one of my family members where, uh, they go on, oh, you, you're always this person that talks too much. Well, that's what my dad said to me when I was a teenager. And of course he was putting me down for my style and what I do. And it was interesting because even though he says, Ken, you know, you talk too much and put me down for my style. I was the person asked to be MC of banquets when I was 16 and 17 years of age, because I would be quick on my feet. I'd be able to have a responsiveness. And I also took the responsibility of being an MC of a banquet seriously, because if you've ever been to these banquets that's run by volunteers where you have just a terrible MC and they ruin the night. Oh yeah. Well, <laughs> well I'm, I'm the opposite. I said, no, no, no. I, I take this as a profession. Mm -hmm. And recently, interesting enough, in spite of sort of the history, my dad has a group called the pioneers 
which are elderly people that have been in our community for you know, 60, 70, 80, 90 years. And they asked me to be the MC. And so then I've done it for two years. They won't hold it this year. Uh, and people would come and said, how are you able to do that? Because the people that were doing it before were on the board. They were, dementia was already setting in and they were trying to lead this banquet. It was just a disaster. <sighs> you know, nice people, but they were way out of their element and they shouldn't have been emceeing it. So, you know, here's a family trying to contain you. Said, who do you think you are? Put you down for talking. Yet yeah, it's my profession. It's what I do. I've been paid Mm. Uh, or have conducted 3,000 presentations around the world in the last 32 years. So, hello, what, like, help me out here. And uh, just like your family, my dad is um, just really unsure about what I really do. If I say I'm doing some speaking or training for, like, Chrysler, well, he gets that. But producing psychological tools and assessments and all the other work, like we were talking around purpose, no, they, they wouldn't get it. So part of, you know, all of that story from both of us for mm -hmm. the viewers and listeners is that it's okay to move on, but also you don't have to share your new life with your old life. Yeah. And that you can be that person for them, but guard your future sort of um, expounding about what you're going to do and writing these books and creating these e-courses and all that kind of stuff. They don't care. They're not there. So it's interesting because my wife and I, when we go to family events, we, we talk about emotional intelligence and we talk about interpersonal intelligence and we talk about self-awareness. But one of the things we do at family events, we, we have a game. We say, could we go all night with 20 people in the room with three hours of time where not a single person will ask us a question about us? And we can, we can do it multiple times. So we go to an event and Diana, how are you doing? And what's new at the ministry? And, you know, how's the family doing? And I heard you went on this trip. So a gifted conversationalist is a person who asks questions. Right. But what we note is that nobody asks myself or my wife a question. Now there's the odd occasion where it does occur. It does happen, but it's extremely rare. So people like to talk about themselves. So we might say, well, listen, uh, you know, we're thinking about going to Hawaii. Oh, we went to Hawaii two years ago and we're over here. And all of a sudden they're telling a story, which is all about being self-centered about their trip to Hawaii two years ago. And we just shared what well, we're going to Hawaii. They didn't ask about where you're going, when you're going, who's going. No, no, they went on to their own. This is a conversational skill set that most of the population does not have. And by the way, for those of you watching, play the game. Go out there. And uh, don't talk about yourself. If somebody talks about something, make sure you say, respond to it, but then transition back to a question and see if you can go all night without anybody asking a question about yourself. And then Ooh. here's the other one. Don't be offended by it. Give it up. Offense is a choice. So, you know, we talked about trauma and we talked about forgiveness, but being offended is also a choice. You know, mm -hmm. Dr. David Burns' work around uh, trauma, if you've ever read his book, um, Feel Good, is, I mean, it's, it's got about 500 pages at four point font, is that my response is always a choice. Yes. And even Dr. Gottman in his work around relationships is that once I get over 100 beats per minute, non-athletic, I'm no longer rational. Well, that's where we have trauma, we have abuse, we have uh, crazy things that happen. One of our number one um, 
constituents we serve is law enforcement. So uh, Dr. Anderson, who founded the company, was a criminology professor. And then one of my co-authors, Dr. Mitch Davidi, teaches law enforcement officers emotional intelligence. What's the most dangerous situation for law enforcement to go into? Domestic dispute. Yes. Why? Because people are irrational. Mm -hmm. So I've let myself get ramped up. I'm now, biologically, I'm no longer in control of my emotions. Mm-hmm. And now I will say and do things that will regret. And I and now I'm completely out of control. I mean, there was this situation that happened in Palm Springs a couple of two, three years ago where uh, there was an abusive situation carrying on. The officers broke up. The couple started to contain him. And then she got a gun out and killed both officers. Oh. So, so that's why officers in these environments, they said, you have to watch your back because it's completely unpredictable as mm-hmm. part of it. So, I mean, there's obviously lots of things that we've covered today in the show and we've gone for our 55 minutes. Anything else, Diana, that you want? I mean, um, it's kind of, I pinched myself and said, did I do all this work? Where did it go? Um, in eternities, like even longer than now, is anything else that you wanted to maybe uh, poke your head into before we close? Well, I could. We we could go down a whole bunch of rabbit trails on a lot of things that you said. You said so many great nuggets, but maybe for our listeners, perhaps give like a list of actionable things that they can do right now. Mm. Now, just before I do it so that we don't miss you, I have a gift for everybody. Yes. And so <clears throat> I'm going to give you uh, access to the e-copy, sorry, that's kind of just reflecting, yeah. uh, of my uh, the Quest for Purpose book. And the get that is go to my speaker site, which is kenkeys, K-E-N-K-E-I-S dot com slash faithful. I don't know where we got that uh, name from, <laughs> but, and you'll, in that hidden URL, and of course you'll be able to put it in the show notes, Diana, as well, mm-hmm. is that you'll be able to go there and then download the e-version of the book. What I am sometimes shocked at is that I give away this book is that the amount of people who don't opt in to get the book. It is a roadmap, a step-by-step process to get clear about who and what and where and what you should be doing in your life and all components. And now it's going to take work. It's going to take time. But where are you going to be in six months if you don't do it? So uh, it's there. I spent six months going through this process with my coach, Mike McManus you know, driving three hours each way when it wasn't pertinent. So when I think about actionable steps and you think about people's lives, first of all, if you don't have a purpose in life, then your purpose is to find your purpose. And so that becomes the focus rather than trying to say, you know, uh, I better be doing this or just take a breath and allow yourself time and space. I've noticed that the Holy Spirit is never frantic. (laughs) You know, he's on time and he's moving forward, but he's never frantic. And so uh, chaos is not from him. So just be peaceful, be quiet and start paying attention and asking yourself this question. If you are doing what you're doing right now in all contexts of your life, 20 years from now, is that okay? And if you say no, then that obviously infers change. So what is it that you're going to move towards? Don't freak out. Don't try to do it all. Uh, I mean, if I'm trying to be a marathon runner uh, this morning, and then I said, I'm going to run and do a marathon tonight, I'm going to be dead. 
I got to train for it. Yeah. So life is the same way. The other one is for us in our resources is that there's all different ways to get to clarity. So we have assessments and they're all learning assessments. So a values assessment, a self-worth assessment, a personality assessment. We have um, a self-worth one. I, I might've mentioned that already. And so all of those become puzzle pieces to create the clarity. The other one, Diana, is, is get a group that's going to support you. Like, look around and don't judge the five closest friends, but say, are the five closest friends in a space that are going to help you to go where you need to go? And sometimes one of my mentors used to say, you know what, Ken, sometimes you need to fire clients. He says, why? He says, you've outgrown them. The client that you're serving now is not the client that you started with five years ago. So, you know, like my fees and what I do is completely different than what it was 15 years ago. So now start paying attention to that. And then the other thing is, is that life takes effort. If you get finished watching the show and do nothing and do no action steps, then you're going to have the same thing tomorrow. So what are the steps that you can take? Start moving towards it. Download the book. It's got a complete roadmap. And the other thing, we'll make sure that my contact information is there, Diana, is that if people have questions, reach out. I'll respond as, as best as I can in the time that's allotted there. But I'll respond to you to be able to say, hey, how can we help you? Or call you and your ministry and some mm -hmm. of the coaching that is available there. So that'll get you started. And again, don't try to do it all overnight. Just take one step at a time. The research shows is that if you try to uh, three things at once to change it, you have about a 15% likelihood of implementing it and a 75% success rate if it's just one thing. So one thing at a time, progress forward and keep listening to Diana's podcast shows. And that should be the other step that they do too, right? Right. <laughs> wow. This was so awesome. I, I cannot wait to read that book and I hope that our listeners will download the book and get busy reading it and putting those things into practice. Uh, we're, we will probably have to have you back again in the future because I can just tell you have so much more to share with us to help. Anytime to be able to serve and support and, you know, go granular in some of these other areas that we can talk about. So for sure, anytime, Diana. So today, just choose one thing, one small thing to get you closer to your healing goals. God bless. Thank you for listening to the Wounds of the Faithful podcast. If this episode has been helpful to you, please hit the subscribe button and tell a friend. You can connect with us at dswministries.org, where you'll find our blog along with our Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel links. Hope to see you next week.